Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Robin's career reads a bit like a film script. Swedish star hits the top of the charts, sidesteps the pop game for a more personal sound, and ends up self-sufficient and even bigger than before. This second chapter has included five Grammy nominations, appearances on Saturday Night Live and other television shows around the globe, iconic music videos with millions of views, and a festival aimed at encouraging young women interested in programming, robotics, 3D printing, game development, electronic music, and more. In short, it's been an incredible ride for this inspiring role model for artists everywhere. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded as part of the Red Bull Music Festival in New York in 2018, Robin sat with her friend and fellow artist Adam Kindness Bainbridge to discuss key moments from the past 20 years, why she always thinks of Prince to keep in shape, and the experiences that inform her long-awaited new album, Honey. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Hi. Hi. Are we both a little bit nervous? I'm super nervous. Okay, Okay, then we'll start on something that uh, you're going to have full and total recall for, hopefully. Your childhood. Let's start at the beginning. (laughs) And the reason why, Rebel actually said to me, please don't do a long chronological talk, but I was like, how do I do a 23-year career? without some kind of structure. So we're going to have to start at the beginning. Let's talk about the influence that you claim you've had from your parents. So your parents were in an experimental theatre group called Shazerade. Sherazad. Okay, I can't say it. It's the lady that tells all the, all the stories in 1001 Night. Okay, it's like a, it's a Persian thing, right? Yes. So my pronunciation might have been right. That's fine. (laughs) That was the Swedish version. Mm -hmm. Tell me about going on tour with your parents, because you were on the road with them pretty much constantly as a child, right? Yeah, we were touring from when I was six months till I started school. Six months old? Yes. And uh, it was a group that my parents started in, I think, 76... So three years before I was born, and it was them and their friends from, like, university. So I was touring with my parents and 12 other human beings. They were all quite childish and lovely actors. In a minibus? In a coach? In a... Yeah, the first bus we had was a Volkswagen hippie thing. And then we got a few other bigger vehicles later on, and um, they did experimental theater, kind of bordering onto modern dance. They were very inspired by the Russian culture of theater that came out of the communistic era. But they weren't making political theater, which was at the time something that everyone else was doing. They were doing more theater about the human condition. 
and about the problems with communism as well. But it was quite experimental, wasn't it? Yeah. You've told me, is anyone here from Stockholm, from Sweden? There's a few, there's a few Stockholmers in the back. (laughs) So you've told me, as we've walked through Stockholm before, you've pointed to the town square and said, this is a weird memory for me. Like this, the car crash piece? Yeah. So could you explain that? Oh, that's great, you remember that. Um, So it was in the beginning of the 80s and my parents had made this happening thing (laughs) and it involved two long like Cadillacs driving down a ramp on one of the biggest squares in Stockholm. And my mom and four other female actors dressed up uh, and there, it was like a slow motion crash. So they were all hit by the cars and they all died. <laughs> and uh, um, it started with, started with my godfather driving this Cadillac. He was a pimp and, and he had, he had a tiger in the car, which was one of the other actors. And then a little gray man with a portfolio walking around the square. And the whole thing ended with this gray man just like transforming into this amazing female creature on stilts. And it was all accompanied by experimental synth music. Okay. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, and I was on the shoulders of my dad. And also at the same time, there were like the first maybe um, racist, like, demonstrations happening at the same there were clashes between I guess Nazis and hippies in the center of Stockholm so it was quite it was kind of intense energy it was one of the like stronger memories that I had from from hanging out with my parents <laughs> but I just I remember thinking it was quite indicative because whenever we're in Sweden I feel like we end up talking about the reminiscences of your childhood and spaces that you move through and you'll say, oh, I remember when this happened here or mm-hmm. I used to go to a club there. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that kind of experimental culture and your parents' friends sort of had an impact on you. Mm-hmm. You know, that style interview that you did for Swedish radio, you were saying just the sense of costumes and performance. You realized later in your life that it had a really profound influence on you. Yes, I'm so happy you're making this interview, Adam. <laughs> I feel so, I feel very safe. Okay, so, um, yeah, it had a huge influence on me, of course, because, so my grandfather was a priest, and after daycare or school, I would be alone with my grandparents, and I would come with him to church, and I would, you know, watch him preach. And then my mom would pick me up and take me to the theater. And there was another costume and another kind of preaching (laughs) going on. And so this environment was like both very serious and spiritual things, but also uh, my mom, you know, playing witches and prostitutes. And (laughs) and of course was, you know, it shaped me. It shaped me. I guess like in a way you've had, you've seen the performativeness of the, church, then you've seen the performativeness of your parents' theatre practice. What, at what point did music come into that? And like pop music, for example, because um, I know that you said that you, you were kind of like at first very much influenced by what your parents were listening to. Yeah. A lot of the music that I loved as a child were things that I listened to in the tour bus and 
it was everything from what my mom listened to, which was a lot of uh, Aretha Franklin and Jimi Hendrix. And, but then also, like, other things that the other actors were listening to. And one of the first memories I have was, was Hero with David Bowie on headphones, driving on some road somewhere in Europe. It was my way of, like, making time pass by. You know, it was boring being in a tour bus with grown-ups, no one to play with. Um, but also that, you know, most people that were in the theater group, they loved music, and it was like a big part of our everyday lives. Because you, you have younger siblings, but your younger siblings weren't on the road with you. No, no. I think when, when my parents got pregnant with my brother, you know, they realized that there's some great things about, you know, bringing me on the road, and there's some less great things. <laughs> For, right. One kid on the road is fine. Two kids on the road is... Yeah, I think they wanted to give him a more stable upbringing. And so we moved back to Stockholm when I was seven, and I started school when my brother was born. So him and I have very different experiences of my parents. And then you started writing songs at 11. There seems to have been one key event that was inspiring to you in terms of the lyrical content of these songs. What, what would that be? My parents' divorce. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge thing for a kid uh, when your parents decide to split up or, you know, separate in some way. And because we had been touring, you know, my whole childhood and they were always working together, mm -hmm. um, there was it, was it was a big kind of separation, and it wasn't a good one either. And so that that was the first the first song I wrote was called "In My Heart," and it was about my parents' divorce. Yeah. So I actually have some of the lyrics for "In My Heart." <laughs> I showed them to you at the weekend, and we decided we weren't going to uh, broadcast those. But this is this is a kind of great story. So Robin was discovered and correct me on any details here, um, in a school assembly uh, in 1993-ish? Yeah. So uh, there's this group called Legacy of Sound in Sweden, and uh, they were invited to Robin's school to do a performance, and they wanted one of the kids at the school to do a, a number or a, a something after the band had performed, and they picked, uh, they picked Robin. And I've asked you about this, but what's also funny is that the Swedish pop star directly responsible for then getting Robin signed to BMG sent me an email and told me about this childhood, wow. this, this memory of you at the school assembly. Let me read you some of it, and I'll show you the rest afterwards, but it's really, it's really sweet. This is from Maya from Legacy of Sound. She says... After our show was done, I walk off stage, and after that, this young blonde girl walks up on the stage with what I remember was a backing track cassette tape. She presented herself and her song, and it really grabbed a hold of me, her voice, her stage presence, and her being totally comfortable and confident on stage. She was 14 or so, and to me, born to do this. I walked up to her to talk, asked her what her dreams were. Did she want to sing professionally, or would she want to pursue a career? I asked for her number and called her, spoke to her mother, and I decided... I wanted to introduce her to the team I was working with in the studio at the time. Um, I remember bringing Robin down to Peter. She was just super cool. And at the meeting, I asked if Robin would feel like singing just a song a cappella for Peter. She sang, as always, her heart out. I guess the rest is history. 
I've followed her career ever since, and she is to me one of the greatest female artists we have. Solid, heartfelt, witty, sure of herself and where she wants to go, and a brilliant songwriter. I have often wondered, though, because we lost contact when she signed to BMG, of how those early years affected her. I mean, she was only 14 in a music business full of sharks. It cannot have been easy starting that early, and I hope that she had a good com comfort of the people around her. We see each other every once in a while, and it always warms my heart. I'm a huge fan and have been since day one. Oh. That's very, very sweet. She's a very sweet person. And yeah. do you remember that? Do you remember singing this song in the school assembly? I do. And I feel bad for her, feeling bad for, like, putting me in the record. I mean, I don't know if that's what she meant. I don't but... think she feels bad. I think it's something that you've mentioned, which is that it was a very young age to enter into a an old-fashioned music business as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, it was nothing like what it is today. It was not fractured. It was not multicultural. It was, you know, a very old-school industry. And um, I'm so happy that I decided to start my record company eventually. Yeah. Um, but those first 10 years were really important and very informative but really difficult as well. I never felt like I fit it in. I mean, imagine going from that kind of, you know, thing with my parents into a much more conservative and very old school way of, of working. I was so naive, you know, when I came to, when I came here to this city the first time when I started working on, on that first album, I just thought, yeah, you know, we'll tour. I'll play some music for people. You know, I thought it was going to be like with my parents. Uh, no. no, no. Well, you're, you're not in a Volkswagen bus on the back, back roads of Sweden anymore. No, no tigers. But I mean, even in Sweden, because this is me still looking at the, the, the very formative years that you had there, you were opening for Tina Turner in Sweden. How was that? Like, do you remember that? Nerve-wracking. I mean, Nerve I was so little and I didn't know my voice and I, you know, I was... Super nervous, but amazing to meet her. It was one of my mom's, like, big idols, and I remember meeting her before, and she was like, well, hi, Robin. <laughs> I heard you've got quite a voice, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Um, and that was mind-blowing, of course, yeah. Um, let's, let's play one of these... Um, these formative, inspirational artists. And um, we'll come back to Robin's rapping later in the lecture, but this, this was one of your influences and someone that you've gone on to make music with. Um, let's play Manchild by Nana Cherry, please. So that was Manchild, the video by Nana Cherry. Who was the baby? I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe it's Tyson, her second... Child. Shout out to Tyson. Shout out to Tyson. And shout out to Nana for being the first, what I know at least, female in pop music to be pregnant and have her baby in the video. It's like she did it in, what's this, 85? 80? I don't know, 87 maybe. Yep. Um, I want to talk about, again, the beginnings of your Scandinavian career. Just before you came to America, so you end up writing some of these big first songs with Max Martin. And this is the same year that he's writing Everybody 
and I want it that way for the Backstreet Boys. Like, this is like his big moment on the scene. How, how was that? Do you remember working with him and Dennis? I do, I do. Um, I had finished my, most of my first album, and Peter, who was my manager at the time, um, said that he thought I should work with this guy, um, Martin Sandberg. Because how old would he have been at the time? How old could he have been? I mean, 25? But they were young, weren't they? They were young. He was really young. Dennis was a little bit older. Um, but Martin was his protege. And Martin had been, you know, I remember being told later on how Dennis had been, you know, kind of putting him in a basement and just have him write a bunch of songs that, that were all of those amazing things that came out later. And um, the first time I met them both, I was late and I was really nervous. And they kind of, they kind of froze me out. They were quiet for like, they didn't talk to me for a minute. And I got super nervous. It was quite like traumatizing. But then when, when, when we got over that, they were super friendly. But it was kind of a, a hard duty kind of environment for me to come in. Because well, Max Mine comes from heavy metal as well. Heavy metal like suburb kid. Um, but one of the most generous people that I've worked with. I have to say that, like he's so always from that time up until, you know, when we worked later, the most generous and open person. Because mm. you came back to work with him on Time Machine. Yeah. Like years later. Mm. It's funny. And you even took me to visit the Max Martin mansion in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Where there's like, there's a minion working in every room. <laughs> write a song, write a song, write a song. Yeah. They're professionals. I mean, good minions. Yeah. <laughs> so it's on a time delay. We're okay. Um, so then you come to America, and what's crazy about America is that we found footage on YouTube of your 18th birthday party here in New York. How does an 18-year-old get in a club in New York? They shouldn't even be allowed. But they, they were there pouring cocktails, and Andy Bell from Erasure's there. It was something that the record company did. I guess it was the social media of that time. Like, there wasn't an Instagram. You had That's to true. film things and show them to people and send it to MTV. <laughs> There was no email. I remember when I came here the first time, I had email, but most people didn't, you know? So you, when you met someone, you were like, do you have, are you on the internet? Do you have email? That's how you... You'd be like, here's my Instagram. It comes on a VHS cassette. Exactly. Oh, no, it's true. And you even, in, in that press kit, there's also footage of you backstage at the Apollo, which I find crazy. Yeah, me too. You did, not so much that you did it, but that must be nerve-wracking as hell. Like, live at the Apollo, you don't think it was the talent show, but you know you performed there. And then more footage that we found, and we're not going to show today, but maybe you'll be able to find it on the internet. Robin was also one of the very few non-black artists to perform on Soul Train. Twice. And we watched that yeah. footage this weekend. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this, this stuff just must have been so nerve-wracking. It was. It still is, in a way. I mean, I think to have, like, your first, you know, your teenage years documented like that is kind of crazy. And I'm still like, yeah, when I think about it, I want to I go back to myself when I was 16, 17 and be like, hey, girl, you're going to be okay, you know? 
because it was. It was, it was kind of tough, and I can't believe how brave I was and all the things I did. I mean, it's bordering on just stupid, but, but in, no, not stupid, but like very just throwing myself out there in things I didn't know that much about, but I learned along the way. Because when I've spoken to your brother and he said, you know, you have to remember, Robin left home as a teenager. You became fully independent, which is, that's a, a bold thing to do. Like leave school at 16, just be like, I'm out here, I'm an adult. And in a particularly crazy music industry as well. Because yeah. you also reminded me that like, this was the era when lots of musicians would do talk shows together and it's like you were backstage with Destiny's Child or you were on the same show as like a huge girl group at the time. But you're just like, you, on your own, yeah. from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's brave. It's yeah, amazing. it is. It is great. And, you know, how lucky am I to be, to be able to still doing it? I mean, it's luck and it's a, a, a certain kind of, you know, a, um, chain of events also. And you meet some really good people along the way. And, yeah. Let's talk about how... This, this era of your career, this was also interesting talking to you about your albums. And I said to Robin, when you say album one and two, do you mean Robin is here? Do you mean that as album one? Or I'm getting the feeling that you think of Robin as your first album. And you said that in a way you do. Like now you think of Robin as your first album, Body Talk as your second album. So let's talk about how you've moved from the early three albums um, and the kind of influences that you had in those. So then Robin, album four, album one, and starting your own label. Like, what, what was it that made you think, to hell with this, I don't need a label anymore? Or I want to change, you, you kind of changed music uh, stylistically. Like, is it that music was changing around you or did you change as an individual? I think it was me more changing, I was changing. And uh, I felt like I got to a point where it was so painful working in a major record company industry that it wasn't worth it. I felt like I had nothing to lose, really. Um, and so it wasn't... Yeah, it was brave, but it wasn't like, oh, I think I'm going to do this. It was like, I really need to do something now. Um, because it was difficult to try my ideas, even though I think, you know, even though I always wrote my own songs and I was involved in the production, the environment was, you know, it made me censor myself, I think, more than other people censoring me, you know, straight on. I mean, there was definitely moments and, and, and things, situations where I didn't feel comfortable, but I was never, uh, I never felt used, but I definitely felt that I was I could never spread my wings. I could never be um, as experimental as I wanted to be. And so starting the record company was a way of like building a structure around me that would protect me from, from the pressure I would put on myself, but also, of course, from, from a more commercial part of the industry that I didn't really... I couldn't mirror myself in it. I felt very weird and, and, and the things that, I've, that felt natural to me just weren't received. It wasn't that they were pushed down, they just kind of went over the heads of a lot of people that I was working with. 
And I couldn't explain what I wanted to do. I felt like I just had to do it. Um, and again, I was lucky to work with someone that put this idea in my head. And I also, at the same time, started making music in a different way. Because um, this was around the time you were sent a copy of Deep Cuts by The Knife. Yes, I, I got a, a CD in my mailbox and it was The Knife's first, second album, exactly. And uh, thank you, Adam. And um, no, so I was, uh, I was happy that they wanted to send me this album. I thought it was amazing music and I just got in touch with them, kind of like I did with you and said, do you want to work with me? And they were so supportive, um, very feminist way of working, very conscious way of working. And they were all independent and they were doing it all by themselves. And we made a great song together and I played it to the label that I was working with at the time and they didn't like it. And that just kind of did it for me. I just felt like, I love this. And you don't like it at all. <laughs> like, how... How am I supposed to work with this? And the same guy who didn't like that song was actually the person who helped me start my label. So that's how it is. It's so contradictive. You think, you know, you think the music industry was all bad, but it, it wasn't. It's just, you know, for me, it was about finding the courage of really following my instinct. Yeah. So this, this uh, the Robin album with Who's That Girl and... Let's talk about Be Mine as well, because this was, this was the first time for you working with Klaus, who's now a long-term and close collaborator. Yeah. It was working with The Knife. It was kind of like, you've described it somewhere, as like the time you found your collaborators and you found your sound with them and like really came into your own. Um, how did you meet Klaus? I don't remember. I mean, I remember the first time we met. Um, I think... It was an idea from my then manager. You know, you should meet with Klaus. We should see what happens. We met and we decided to start working together. And it became a really close relationship and still is. Klaus Orlund is his last name. It's like the second band member in Robin. <laughs> it's, no, it really is. Um, because if he had a large role in the Robin album. He had an even larger impact on the Body Talk records because a lot of that was just you and him being very, very spontaneous and like just having fun as well. Yeah. Um, is Be Mine the first song you wrote together? I think you said it was. I believe it is, yeah. It's a song... Well, it was a song that Klaus brought to me and we finished it together. And I remember feeling so excited, really so excited about being able to make music that I liked. Mm. Well, this, this is really kind of Robin as well. Robin's gone into her archives and found us the demo, the original demo of the song. So a lot of you might know the finished version, but now we're going to play uh, this demo of uh, Be Mine. <laughs> so that was the demo for Be Mine. That sounded so good. <laughs> and that was originally written on guitar, and you said, was it like the Kate Bush cloud-busting influence? Yeah. You said you wanted to bring in strings. Yes. I wanted to 
Well, I mean, Klaus is a rock guy. Rock. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> and so, um, well, the only guitar that I've listened to maybe intensely has been Prince's guitar. But, and I think that's why I loved this song so much. It reminded me of something like that. And, but I was like, I can't do this guitar thing. I feel like he's snuck it in on some songs since then. Yes. It was maybe like the first song you're like... Yeah, no, no it's like, exactly, too, too much, too soon. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we re-recorded it with strings, yeah. And it's just strings, bass, and drums, and vocals on the finished version. I want to talk about um, the songwriting process as well, because mm. for this song... Klaus may have brought um, a fairly complete song and it's something that you've ended up writing together. Um, I love the way you described uh, writing Dancing on My Own, for example, where you were saying that the melody was just floating around for a while, like you just had this idea. How does that happen to you? Like, will you be walking down the street and the seeds of a melody come or is it... Are you sleeping? Are you in the shower? Like, what, where do these ideas for songs come from? Well, every song is different. Some, some of them, you struggle with them for years. But some songs come as little presents. And they're rare. But some of them come together, like where everything kind of comes together. Usually when I write music, it starts with um, melody and rhythm. So it won't be actual words. It will be just be like a, a rhythm, mostly, uh, with, with some notes. Um, and sometimes it's lyrics, sometimes it's just the word that I love. But with Dancing on My Own, it was one of those things where the melody and the rhythm and, and some of the words kind of came at the same time. And I think it was because, because to me, Be Mine and Dancing on My Own are a little bit connected. They don't sound the same, but they're... They're connected in the chord structure and, and the way that the chorus has like two parts. And, and I think I'd been touring with the first album for a long time and I'd been marinating on this kind of language for a while and, and, and Dancing on My Own kind of came out of that, I think. And so I had this idea that I brought with me to the studio with Patrick Barrier, who I wrote Dancing on My Own with. And we started playing around with chords and... A, synthesizers and it all just kind of happened I don't know how to explain it it's close to magic sometimes when that when that hits you I mean I read in another interview from around this time where you were saying that part of the emotional intensity that you wanted to get into your songs was that kind of emotional intensity that you have at 15 16 so like these when you really fall in love, you fall in love. When you're heartbroken, you're heartbroken. Mm. You can tell that from the, the songwriting as well. Good. Is part of that, <laughs> I wondered, um, because also you were quite busy at 15, 16. Is this like, is part of this cathartic process? Is like you're revisiting emotional spaces you maybe didn't get to visit the first time around? Yeah. You mean the first time around with the first albums or the first... At, at that age. At that age, yeah. I mean, who knows? The unconscious is so mysterious. 
But I think that after living a few years now, not that I'm old, but I'm getting older, I feel like when you look back at those, when I look back at like teen, my teenage years or whatever, it might have been things that happened then or a little bit earlier, but it also might have been things that happened when I was super small. Like I feel like it's, there's so much inside of us, I think, that we don't have access to. And then when you're in a very extreme or desperate or sad situation, there are little messages that pop up and sometimes you're able to catch them and make a song out of them. I've written a lot of sad songs, yeah. And um, do you, do you... sometimes people ask me, like, what happened to you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. But I think um, I'm a fan of, of when, when there's, like, light and dark at the same time. And when there's just happiness or just sadness, it just gets boring. Like, that's so predictable. And the, the magic to me is when there are lots of things going on at the same time that's much more satisfying and, and, and that's what I that's what I'm drawn to when I make music I guess and do you feel it is like a cathartic process do you feel better after writing songs yes because you're able to turn something that might feel like you're holding in or that you're you know that you're um, what, censoring yourself or somehow not giving or showing you're able to to make something good out of it you know something positive which is amazing um so that's really amazing but i wouldn't call well maybe making music is a kind of a therapy but i wouldn't call it that because therapy to me is something very different um and much slower and <laughs> um it's just like a way of being and a way of living that i just haven't been able to change or whatever yeah <laughs> well I think I can speak for a lot of people in the room as well wouldn't like all of the like the depth of emotion and the feeling that you put into your songs it's like it's so meaningful to people mm. like I think it really like those emotional ideas of dancing on your own or you will never be mine like I think it really it, it's not just universal but it's like something that obviously connects to what happens in people's lives as well um, let's hear a little bit of another demo. This is quite exciting. So Robin's given us the demo for Dancing on My Own. Can you explain? Can you explain to everyone what yogurt is? Yes. So yogurt is a French word for a white kind of thing that you eat. No, I'm just kidding. It's a... <laughs> It's a, it's a word that you taught me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yogurt is when you sing, like, made-up English. Gibberish. Gibberish. Yeah. could be any language, but things that aren't real words, I guess. Yeah. So this is... So this is... The, some yogurt. The, the demo version with some yogurt. And towards the end of the chorus, just so you know, I'm going to crossfade into the finished version so you can kind of hear what ended up happening with the song. So this is the demo of Dancing on My Own. That's a little peek behind the curtain. 
So that was the, uh, the demo for Dancing on My Own. Tell us about writing that with Patrick. What do you remember? I remember Patrick, he's like in punk bands usually. I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he also loves synthesizers and it's so gothy now that I hear it. Like it's so like very um, sad. And yeah, I think we just brought out these synthesizers and I wanted it to be really pounding mm -hmm. and he got it. Um, and so you'd, you'd already had that idea for a chorus in your head? Yeah, just around. the chorus I had there. And what would, what would happen? Would you like say, I think I have this melody and sing it to him? Like, um, would it sound like that? I think some of it I sang to him. Some I didn't know if it was going to work. You know, some, some things you, you don't want to like, you know, put it out there before you're sure of it, you know, when you first work with someone. But I had this... I keep dancing on my own. I had that. I knew I wanted it to finish like that. Something very definitive about the melody. Or, and I always, try to, I always try to write a song that I feel like some maybe Prince could like. <laughs> and I think he could have liked, I keep dancing on... Yeah, for sure. I, maybe. So that's... That's how I get myself in shape. <laughs> I think about him. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, I've also noticed you in the studio. There's a, a thing that Robin does when there's a song we're working on that's quite good, that we know has got promise. You'll start singing A Love Bizarre by Sheila E. over the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you're like, shit, got the Robin seal of approval. Okay, great. <laughs> Yeah. What, what's it about that song as well? I don't know. It's just something, it feels like it's, it's a kind of melody that I feel is timeless. That it's not connected to a trend or a, a rhythm that's happening right there and then. It's something else. Something that, I don't know what to, how to describe it. It's like French fries, it's always going to be amazing, you know. <laughs> there we go. I think that's the perfect metaphor, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think we can, we can start teasing towards the next era of robbing, because there's a lot of people in this room who are like, okay, we talked about the early albums, we mm -hmm. talked about Robin, we talked about Body Talk. Mm -hmm. The question is, what's coming next? Yeah. Or what has come next? What, let's think about the projects that you've worked on between Body Talk and now. Mm. So a key one, I guess, because it was like, well, in a way it was like your first band band, mm. the way you describe it was La, La Bagatelle Magique, mm. which was you, Christian Falk, mm. and Marcus Jägerstad. Yeah, exactly. How did that come about? Well, Christian Falk was a person that I've... He, he worked on my first album. And Christian was this amazing person that, even though I was 16 years old, when we worked on the first album, when I was in the studio with him, it was like we were equals. He took me very seriously. 
He gave me like all the space and he took my ideas seriously. That's so rare. I don't know if you remember what it is like to be 16. I'm sure you do. But do you remember how people just wouldn't take you seriously? Um, and he did, you know? He seemed like quite a, like an unusual personality. Yes. He was just like a bit different from everyone else in, that you were hanging out with in Stockholm. Yes, he was different. I've never known anyone like him. Sometimes you're lucky to meet those people. That his frequency was so high, and it was always high, and he always kept his eyes on the important things. You know, he would be—he's—he was very complicated, but he was also someone that would always inspire me to go back to the things that I thought was important with music. And he's also the person that played me a lot of my favorite music for the first time. And he had an amazing record collection, and he taught me so much about music. And So when I, was, when I came out of the Body Talk albums and I'd been making so much music and I'd been touring so much, I was really exhausted. And he was one of the people that I started making music with again just to feel good about music and not feel like it was a job. And we spent time and we started working on a project together. It kind of just came together naturally. Um, and Love is Free was one of the first things that we worked on and it came this is how he worked i mean for me he's probably one of the most important people in my life when it comes to music and he was always digging through his record collection and always finding things to sample i mean he started as a bass player playing in a punk band and then again and then <laughs> but then he also you know got into you know african music and house music and he was like one of the first people that i heard play two-step, you know, and this was like when he was like 45 years old. Um, he loved hip-hop music. He made the most, the sickest beats that you can imagine. Um, and he was still doing it at the end of his life. Um, and he dug up this really obscure um, thing called Artomatic that was released on a small hip-hop label here in the U.S. In, in the 80s. And someone on that record, I don't remember his name, made this house song. And he found this little part in it and he sampled it. And he started making Love is Free and it became like a, a totally different thing. But still, like, that's how he worked. It was very, very inspiring to be around him. Maybe this is a good opportunity to... Um to listen to a little bit of Love is Free. And um, I think we have the video as well. Can we have the video, please? So that was uh, Love is Free, which is Bagatelle Magique and Maluka in the video too. Yes, and a wonderful video made by Sean, I think. I don't know if he's here, but I love this video, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know that Robin had a, a bit of a hard time drawing up a guest list with all of the all of the New York collaborators that have been through your life as well, because the 90s house thing goes deep for you, like right back to working with um, Masters at Work on album three, on, on album main thing, two. on album two, yeah. Two and three, maybe. Oh, I have to, yeah, okay. We worked together. It was an amazing experience. But that's like, that's, that's New, York, New York legacy, though, like working with... Like OG house, house heads. Yeah. And you can kind of start to hear those 90s influences coming back in, in Bagatelle Magique. And yeah. It's even something that I 
think you're being influenced by now, perhaps? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's true. Isn't, but one thing I thought about, this is maybe off topic, topic but one thing I thought about when you were, um, I don't remember what we said, but yeah, about writing songs. One thing that is so amazing with music is that you can, you can hear a song. Like when I was little and you, you know, I was hearing all this music and I didn't have any idea where it came from. Like beginning of you know, my teenage years, listening to all this club music that was in Europe at the time, actually in the charts, music that came from this place that I didn't even know anything about, you know. But in some music, even though if you don't know anything about it, there's these little clues and messages, like someone's made something and you recognize a feeling and you recognize an energy. And you even like with lyrics, you can understand what that person has gone through, even though you've never met them. It's so beautiful. And um, I remember coming here when I was 17 and going to, lucky enough to manage to catch two or three of the last um, body and soul clubs in the shelter and just seeing where this music came from that I had been listening to all my life, but I just didn't know from, I, don't, I didn't know anything about the culture. Um, and I remember walking in and seeing all this baby powder on the floor and these kids sleeping with their headphones and waiting for like, you know, some energy to come back so that they could keep dancing and all, all ages and so beautiful. Well, the, the shelter, which now uh, has monthly parties at Output, um, also started doing these late night after hours for smaller crowds in the city. And I got an email about it that I forwarded Robin. And in a moment of madness, we were both thinking about going last night at 3.30 in the morning, which is when it starts. <laughs> and then we were like, no. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> But it's nice to see that lineage is still there, you know, like the shelter is still going, New York house is still going strong. Um, and all the people that used to go still turning up. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, So sadly, Bagatelle Magique was um, a complicated writing and, and it was a complicated project to finish because Christian got sick halfway through. And I think um, just because it's, it's quite heavy, I would refer people to the Bagatelle Magique website where Robin's actually, you did a really great text with Lisa Milberg about how it was to complete the record and the feelings around Christian's death. But um, it's obviously a big shock and these emotional these tsunamis that have happened in life fairly recently as well like how have you coped with all of these kind of emotional roller coasters are there things that have helped you through that yeah um finishing the album was or finishing the ep that we did even though christian wasn't around anymore was one of them Um, I had started uh, psychoanalysis in 2010 already, but it wasn't until um, 2014, around when um, Christian passed, and I went through a separation at the same time. And uh, I was really searching and looking for new ways of making music and that, that my therapy really started to take off and I stayed in psychoanalysis for about seven years. Um, I 
think, um, I think, you know, things happen in life, big things happen. And um, there's nothing good about people getting sick and dying. I mean, there's no romantic way of looking at it. But I still feel privileged to have been through that experience. And it helped me to appreciate life a lot more. Because mm. I think in, in the text for the Bagatelle Magie project, you were saying that in some ways you had to let the project breathe so that when it did finish, it still maintained the like joyous energy that all of you wanted it to have. Like It was meant to feel like this explosive, living, breathing thing. Um, totally. What was your motivation behind doing the psychoanalysis? Like You knew that it was going to be several years of your life and kind of all-consuming. It was like three days a week. Sometimes I would like, Robin would be on FaceTime and I'd be like, oh, okay, let me leave the room. <laughs> yeah. It's just intense. Like yeah. it was something that you had to commit to like fully, yeah. all your energy and emotionally as well. How, how do you feel also coming out the other side of that, like the process? Um, amazing. So amazing to have had one totally healthy relationship. <laughs> uh, I think that's what psychoanalysis is. You do it for five years minimum, maybe longer. Some people do it all their lives, but I think that's what it is. You, you have one relationship where you try all your other relationships and it's someone that stays around and follows it through with you. And it's three to four times a week. And yeah, it, it kept me in Sweden for a long time. Sometimes, yes, on Skype from LA. Um, but um, yeah, real commitment, almost like an education, I think. Yeah. You, you talked about how you feel like it's given you, not permission, but it's, it's given you a way to em embrace other sides of yourself, like softness, for example. Do you think that's something that we might hear in new music? Or how, how are you embracing that softness in your work? Um, no, you're so right. The whole process of making this album has been very, very different from anything I've done before. There's an album? Yes. <laughs> it's not... It's been, it's not finished yet, but it's, it's almost there. And um, yeah, I felt very raw when I started making this album. No filters. And um, I started it on my own in my studio, listening to music that I love, dancing and making beats. And that's how I started it. And I wanted to start on my own before I started collaborating this time because I had some things that I wanted to try. Mm. Um, and I always, I love to collaborate. It's like one of the things that I always done and that I always will do. But I wanted to just flush it out a little bit on my own before I brought other people into the process. And so it was an, it was an amazing period for me. Like... If you would have asked me then, I would have probably said something different. But looking back at it, it's like one of those, yeah. I think I'm always going to look back at that period and, and feel happy that I, you know, that I was in that space. 
and um, just got in touch with, I guess, a sensuality and a softness that I've wanted to explore. Mm. I actually wanted to ask about, in terms of like your own writing process and how you interact. Like you're saying this is the first time that maybe you had your own tools, you had logic and you had your drum machine and you had synths and you were really starting the songwriting process entirely alone. Um, and this kind of ties into the work that you do with your Tekla Festival as well, which we should maybe touch on. But do you think your career would look different if you'd have had access to the tools that people do now in terms of music making? Like if, if you were 16 and you had a laptop with Ableton and all the tools and you could sample stuff off YouTube, do you think you would be making music differently? Or do you think your career would look different? For sure. I mean, I think your, your musical taste and your identity is always there, but technology helps you to bring it out. And the big thing, I think, for a lot of people that aren't exposed to technology early on in their careers or their lives, you know, you have this unhealthy respect for it and you think that it's difficult or you might not even like it in the beginning because it's not so intuitive. And, and um, a part of this break that I had was also, yeah, going, going more into the, um, that aspect and learning more about the stuff that I always had been using a little bit but really didn't know. And it, it helped me to be much more detailed and specific about what I wanted to do. And that's also what Tecla is about. It's a... Should I talk about that? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, do you want to explain what Tecla is? Yes. Well, I, I can give you some, some, a little bit of praise and props here. We need to like keep, keep lifting the star. Keep lifting. Um, Robin was actually awarded uh, the KTH Great Prize in 2013, which honors a person who, through epoch-making discoveries and creation of new values and by ingenious applications of findings gained on practical aspects of life, promotes Sweden's continued material progress. Good, good job. Um, and so you took that prize money and you created the Tekla Festival. Yes, so when you receive that prize, you're asked to do a seminar for the students of the university, and I just really didn't feel up for it. Like, what am I supposed to tell you? Like, oh, this is how you, like, edit this, like, vocal in logic. Like, I don't, I, I felt not worthy. So I spoke to a very intelligent friend of mine, Lina Tomsgård, and she was like, I heard about this thing you know, this thing that the Swedish government is doing, they're trying to get more, they're trying to get more girls into the technological university in Stockholm. Um, they've asked the school to work on this and maybe we can help them. So we decided to start this festival, which is a, um, a one-day festival each year for, used to be 250, now it's 400 girls uh, that just get to come and listen to music and do workshops and learn how to play instruments or um, have bands or, like, work in um, DAVs, like, music programs, but also, like, program, um, 3D printing, uh, work with AI. It's all, or even STEM, STEM science, so chemistry, physics, all that. Um, just to kind of break down this barrier of fear and, and not having anyone to mirror you as a girl... And it's become something really great that I'm really proud of. 
And when will the next festival be? We're taking a break this year to reevaluate some of the things that we've been trying for the last three years. Um, we're doing an event in Stockholm uh, in April, but we're going to relaunch it again next year. Um, maybe, maybe make it a little bit bigger, but it's really important to keep the quality of it. So it's more about focusing actually on getting more girls into this education because technology is like we all know something so influential and it's important that we all get to decide what it's going to do. And can you explain, this was one part of the KTH thing that confused me a little bit. They built a robot of you. Yeah. Was that part of the prize or that was just a thing they were doing anyway? Or is this something that happens in Sweden when you get sufficiently famous? There? Right, right. That was the prize. No, but, no, but they, they, had a, they had an idea. They had an idea of doing, making a robot and naming it after me. And I was like, cool, do it. <laughs> Do it. Did you meet the robot? Yes. Yeah. Wasn't a lot of interaction. No. No, no AI yet. You didn't get its at email. Least there. Did you stay in touch? <laughs> I was interested in, in the dance moves. Because, like, there is a question in the Q&A about uh, robot voices. Is this, was this the robot doing the, no. The what? The robot voices on your record. Oh, right. No, that's, um, that's Klaus oh. with his... No, it's, it's actually me, but it's just voice transformers and um, different shit that we like. There is a technical question coming about that, so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll move on for now. There's a really good voice transformer in Logic, by the way. You should find it. It's connected. I don't know what it's called, but like in the sidebar there with the channels... You can find it as an already existing setting, and who, it's great. Who uses logic in the room? Okay, oh. <laughs> well, there's more I was going to say. You three people should talk to Robin afterwards about this. But <laughs> I'm also interested in that when you were working on new music, you showed me like the equipment that you use, and you, you used like a Lindrum as well, which I think is kind of interesting because it still it ties you into the... Prince lineage and Jam and Lewis and I wanted to talk to you about some of the more unexpected collaborations that people might not even know have happened in these intervening years. So you have a track with Nena, you did, uh, so that kind of brings it full circle now, um, out the back. Yeah. How was that working with Nena? A dream come true. This album that we, the video, the first video that we saw was from an album called Raw Like Sushi. And it came out when I was 10 years old, and it, it was one of my first favorite albums. She always inspired me so much. And um, I've known her a little bit over the years, but we've never worked together. It was she, like a dream come true. She, she grew up in Stockholm. She grew up in Stockholm. Her mother's Swedish. Her dad is um, from Africa, and I don't know which country. But she grew up with, yeah, she grew up in America. And in the UK. Mm. But she also had this Swedish, Swedishness. I knew she was Swedish. And I was like, oh my God, this cool, amazing woman is Swedish. There was nothing like her when I was growing up. Because you were talking about how, I mean, also the Body Talk record is when rapping really 
gets him involved in your music making in a big way. Yeah. And you've you've told me about Nena being an influence and Missy Elliott being an influence yes, as well. Yes, totally, and salt and pepper. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It just gave me so much courage and life to watch them and hear them and the power in the voices, mm-hmm. all of them in their different ways. But I think it's a kind of female rap that is just based on like energy and happiness and joy and like it's really inspiring to me, like really important. So you came full circle to mm-hmm. working with Nena. Yeah. Then you did a collaboration with Todd Rundgren recently. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of out of left field as well. Yes. How was that? Amazing. That was because of you. I don't think so. Yeah, because <laughs> Adam makes amazing music. And one of the things that you and I have been working on is something that had to do with him. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, right. and so I, we had to get in touch with him, and so therefore he knew that I liked his music, and then he just sent me the song that he wanted me to, to record. I mean, I didn't write anything on that. He was just like, do you want to sing this? I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, and then I threw it out there because I think it's fun, and I'd like to hear you talk about it. We also went to meet Jam and Lewis. Yes. That's pretty wild. It's... I would love to hear you singing on Gem and Lewis. Me too. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it happen, maybe. Maybe. If you're watching, Jimmy and Terry. Jimmy and Terry. <laughs> let's finish those songs. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, we have some stuff with them that we've been working on. It's, it was a, an honor to be in, in their presence. Mm. I mean, I remember as well Robin saying, guys, could you go and... Could you get the synthesizers that you used with Janet Jackson, maybe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Terry Lewis being like, okay, all right, I'll go. And he drives two hours and comes back with them. But then as soon as we plugged them in... They were like in school back in... Was, like they were so happy and so... Play, they were just playful. playful yeah. yeah. And just imagine like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis playing What Have You Done For Me Lately in front of you on keyboards... And you're like, is that the same synth as he's like? (laughs) What about um, your work with Jala? Yeah. Because I feel like Jala's been an important influence on you. It's like a two-way street with your collaborations as well. Yeah. Jala is one of my favorite artists ever um, of all time and genres. She's signed to Kenichiwa Records. Not, Not continuously, but she... For every album, uh, we, we talk about, you know, maybe releasing it and we're, she's working on something new and I think I will be releasing it, that album as well. Um, she's so complex and she has this amazing voice, like a Whitney Houston voice, but she is using it in a very uh, unorthodox way. She's so brave and really bending everyone's perception of what an artist can be. Hmm. And do you think that's part of your your ongoing place in the music industry is to like find talented people and work with them and yeah I mean I feel like I see you work with so many people in so many different genres as well which is is not everyone can do that not everyone has that range to use a phrase from the internet thank you that's Very sweet coming from you. But yeah, I think you're right. I think one of the most amazing things about making music is that you can be 
in collaborations with other people. And there's this structure around it where you can just be free and get to know each other. Mm. I'd like to bring it back to you and your work. This, even this solitary work that you described, do you think it's time to play this little thing that we thought about playing? Yeah. Okay. So it's another demo version. Maybe we should just play it and explain what it is afterwards. Or do you want to explain a little bit first? No, let's just play it. Okay. <laughs> so this is something you might recognize um, in a raw and like a very solo Robin form. It's uh, a very, very early demo. Hashtag release, honey, goddammit. <laughs> That's what it sounded like in the beginning. Now it sounds different. The danger of you saying hashtag release honey damn it is it shows that fans saying that is working. <laughs> is, you know it really? is it really? Is it really? Oh, no, it's true because you haven't released it. No. So. <laughs> Not yet. So I don't know if uh, the super fans in the, the audience recognize that, but that was Honey, a demo of, um, which you first exposed to the world discreetly through an episode of Girls, just as a small TV show that not very many people watch. <laughs> yeah. You know when you get excited about new music, and then I got a question from Liana Dunham about, you know, if I had anything that I, she could play in the show, because Dancing on My Own had a moment in the first season, in an amazing part of it, the, the third episode. And... Um, yeah, I was just really flattered, and I just sent her some demos, and that, that's what she picked. And then I finished a version for her that I wasn't happy with. But people seem to like it. Um, so it's been out there for a while. And, just, just and I just thought I would play it to you guys because you're here. Thank you. Just to clarify, when you say that you didn't like it, it's, it's more, this is just your perfectionism. Is yes, there... totally. Definitely, yes. It's a, it's a good version. I'm not saying you shouldn't like it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's more like, um, I don't know. Sometimes it just becomes more important than with other songs, this was one of those songs where it's just been important to get it to a place where I feel like I made it into what I wanted it to be. That's maybe a better way of saying it. I didn't mean to say that you liking it is a bad thing at all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone took it that way. Well, thank you for pointing that out to me. Well, it's more this idea that <laughs> I, think, I think for you, uh, you, you just have, you have somewhere really ambitious you want to go. And anything along that journey that's not quite there is not far enough or not sufficiently spectacular. Because um, also it's nice this note that you sent me about your new processes, um, kind of like making new music. You said, um, I just need downtime to space out in the studio to sketch out some of the production ideas before I take them to anyone else. I spent a whole year just working on finding an energy that I think I'm describing in the song Honey feeling inspired, playful, sensual. So it's like, I, lo I love that idea that you just have to take time to find the right energy for the song. Yes. 
It's so right. I mean, you're. <clears throat> I think what you're catching on to also is, or what you're feeling is this thing of like how sensitive it is, you know, to find something that is really what you want it to be and that feels honest and honest without being pretentious or whatever, like real and not filtered. And that's just not something that I think I can do anymore under pressure. I, it's like, it's really counterintuitive. You think, or I used to think, I used to think that the more you push, the better it gets. But I think with this album, I've gone more back into this, like the softer I get, the more it happens. And the more colors and the more dynamic a song gets. And that means, for me, it meant just shutting down for a while and being very sparse with my impressions or like just being very sensitive to yeah to what i needed mm. yeah so it's, it's a bit like the softer you sing on a song the more powerful it can be despite the fact that you're actually singing quieter and like more yeah intimately, exactly um i just i, I want to give the audience a little treat um as we're coming to the closing stages of this conversation just because not everyone will know this because they don't know what time you were born. But I wanted to throw out this little Easter egg for everyone. Um, Robin has a sun in Gemini and a moon in Capricorn. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> there's, some, there's like two people in the audience. Like, yes, I knew that. I knew that. Um, and I just thought, I found that really interesting because I'm, I'm only recently coming to astrology and I read all this stuff and I was like, oh, this is very you. Yeah. Amazing. It's all good. How good are you? I can't imagine, I can't believe that you've done this. We've read, we did look at some of this together. And you yeah, were like, but still. Well, no, because it said, um, short description for Sun in Gemini. Mm -hmm. um, she can express herself easily and learns quickly. She's welcoming and gentle. She likes travel and intellectual work. And the weaknesses were a changeable and diffuse nature, wastes energy by doing too many things, lacks persistence in achieving set goals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Moon in Capricorn, calm, cool, and collected, right? Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. It also says truth is they can have plenty of mood swings and some dark emotions now and again. Yes. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> 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 we, yeah. we, we are coming to a point in this Robin chronology where it's almost impossible to say much more without giving too much away which I know is frustrating for the fans in the audience but trust me there's so much exciting stuff coming on the way you know I, I for one as a fan um, I can't wait for new music new tour for the new choreography um, I think everyone in this room would join me in thanking you so much for coming out Robin thank you so much thank you Adam hey this is Jordan Rothline again thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. 
Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.